My name is Julia Ferrioli, and my pronouns are she, her. Today is October 5th, 2021, and I'm speaking with Russell Keith McGee, who is a committed technologist, core developer on the Django project, and the founder of the Beware project. I'm recording this conversation for Open Source Stories in a rather Spartan office that I still haven't decorated. Uh, after moving in. And my first memory of a computer is actually playing um, Wheel of Fortune on MS-DOS, if you can believe that. That was a while ago. Um, and Russell, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yes. Hi, my name is Russell Keith McGee. Uh, I am speaking today from Perth, Western Australia, which is Wajuk Noongar Buja, uh, the traditional owners of the, the land where I'm recording from. Uh, by because of virtue of time zones, it is actually the 6th of October where I'm recording from. So uh, times, how do they work? Uh, yeah, uh, my first memory of a computer is uh, is actually my father bringing home a uh, an original Apple Macintosh. Uh, my father was very keen on experimenting with new and wacky technology uh, and so we had a Commodore 64 in the house very very early and but before that before we had that one we did he did have for a trial for a weekend a, a an original Macintosh that he brought home and I I remember vividly discovering like no idea what I was going to do with this thing but I discovered there was a paint program and you could draw and you could draw things with paint but if you if you got the the, the fattest brush and you cover the colored in the entire screen entirely black and then you clicked reset, it would go through like a couple of shades of like grayscale as, as the cave went away. That is, I don't, I don't know why that blew my mind that you could do that. So um, that's sitting and sitting in my father's office, watching this thing go, go through phases of gray was uh, amused seven-year-old me, I guess. I, I seem to remember effects like that myself, as well as manually starting a screensaver. Hmm. Um, that, of course, if you left running too long, it would burn into the monitor. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining uh, me today. I'm really excited to, to, to chat with you. And I want to just get a little bit of an idea about your background. Um, so let's dig into the really lightweight stuff, like what are some important lessons that you've learned in your life? I, I guess it's kind of been a, a, an ongoing lesson to learn that there is almost no situation where having compassion and empathy for the people you're dealing with uh, that will not serve you well. Um, in my youth, I can remember being a lot more angry and frustrated at all these other stupid people in the world who just don't understand. Uh, and as I've gotten older, I have gradually and sometimes very painfully learned that it's not that everyone else in the world is stupid. It's just that everyone else in the world has a different set of experiences and a different set of knowledge and a different set of backgrounds and a different set of expectations. And more often than not, what is perceived as this person being stupid is just their set of expectations coming into the situation are radically different to your own. And pulling yourself out of your own head to see where they are coming from will, one, not only make dealing with the world a lot less frustrating for you, but can often help you get to 
whatever shared goal you're trying to get to a lot easier. Uh, just by virtue of it's, if you understand where someone's coming from, it's a lot easier to uh, to present the information in a way they're going to be able to understand or absorb or, or, or recognise whatever it is that you're saying. Uh, that's not to say that it isn't incredibly frustrating sometimes when you're still in conversations, but uh, it, it is it has helped me manage my frustration a lot more to sort of realise where other people are coming that other people are coming are not coming from a place of trying actively to frustrate me it's just an accident of the world being a very large and complex and um intriguing place that's a that is a fantastic lesson i often tend to think of it as people are operating with different environment variables set yes yes and there are many many of them and they're not at all documented no and and quite often they aren't even aware of the environment variables they're running under, which is which is part of the frustration, I guess. But uh, yes, being, being aware of those environmental variables is helpful. Um, excellent. So you are very involved in the open source ecosystem. Um, so what? how would you describe open source to someone unfamiliar with it? Uh, I guess I would describe it as a collective project where a group of people work together to build a uh, to build technological or so build techn technological solutions to a problem so that and by and by sharing they don't repeat each other's work and they can learn from each other each other's lessons. Mm -hmm. um, if you if you're working on a system by yourself, there's a limit to how much you can do by yourself. If even two small groups are working together, there is a limit to how much they can achieve on their own. But if everybody is working together and sharing together, you end up with a more robust, more complete solution because you have more input into what is being developed and what is being built. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so it, it is It is in, in some regards the antithesis of what sort of modern capitalism is trying to teach us all to do, which, you know, that, that, that idea that you find something that you're good at, you, you make sure you corner the market so that nobody else can do it. It is, it is this idea that if we all contribute together and we all give a little bit towards the project, everyone moves a little bit further as a result. Kind of this collective good concept. Yeah. 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 So what was your first uh, encounter with open source? How did you first become aware of it? Uh, so I became aware of open source before the word open source was even a thing. So my, my first exposure was in the mid nineties. Um, I, I was messing around with a computer and, and someone did the, Hey, Hey, you know, have you, have you seen this thing called Linux and passed me a great big stack of floppy disks that I could install on my computer? And there's this whole other operating system that was like completely different from the, from Windows. Uh, and like at that point, free software was a thing. And like you, you, you read up all of the, 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 the code around or the, 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 the docu documentation and the, the manifesto statements that are around free software. And this was kind of fascinating idea that, now, this is this is this piece of hardware. This this printer was frustrating, and so people liberated the software for it so they could program their own printer. And like, yeah, that that sounds great. How do I get how do I get any more of that? Uh, and then over the sort of the, that sort of 
that was at the sort of the start of my university career. By by the time I was in my honors years, um, the op the open source movement as as we now understand it, the, you know, the OSI and groups like that were starting to formalize what they were saying uh, under you know a, a new narrative about about what that would mean that wasn't quite in the extreme ends of what the Free Software Foundation was pushing, but mm -hmm. in a similar kind of vein. Gotcha. Um, did you have a, I mean, you talked about Linux, but was there a first piece of open source software that really kind of got you bought into the whole thing? Um, I guess I, if I had to put my finger on it, I would say it was probably the GNOME desktop, mm -hmm. uh, again, in that kind of late 90s-ish timeframe when I should have been spending a lot more time working on my thesis, but um, it was just being intrigued by this idea of a desktop that you could build and configure and change things and modify. And it was still very, very early stages. And so a lot of things broke and a lot of things didn't work. And it was exposing me to new pieces of new ideas and new pieces of technology and like reading up all of the design documents of the people who were actively working on it was just kind of this, this idea that, yeah, I can, I can help them not necessarily that I was successful, but like, at least in theory, I could help them do, uh, do what they're doing. And the only real restriction was my ability to, uh, narrow down a single thing that I could work on and contribute uh, mm -hmm. to, to the overall project. So at that time, were you already uh, coding proficiently or were you in the beginning uh, stages? Uh, proficiently is an interesting description. <laughs> uh, so I, I learned to program like because I had this introduction to, to programming when mm -hmm. I was eight or nine when dad brought home this Commodore 64. So I, mm -hmm. I had been programming right. in various capacities. Uh, I went to university to do uh, to do physics as an undergrad, but I was picking up lots of like all the computing units that I could on the side of my honours ended up being in computer science. So I could code. Uh, I was definitely not at a level that was uh, like building entirely new pieces of a desktop system because it was like so many pieces of that puzzle that I didn't understand yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, had certainly had aspirations, and I, I think I did at one point submit a pull request to some obscure part of GTK, which I think, as as I remember rightly, like the, the the review came back and sort of raised eyebrow. What exactly are you trying to do here? Uh, so you know, it was I, I wasn't wasn't definitely wasn't successful on my first attempts. So I can definitely relate, having had some of those same review comments um, hmm. in in my own experience. So what was the first open source project that you really got involved in? Uh, that is Django, which is kind of, and, mm -hmm. and that sort of very much set my direction for the next uh, 15 years of my, my career and in some regards life. Um, so I've, although I, I knew open source and I liked open source, uh, my involvement in the community was, was very... I've got my own little thing that I want to tinker around with. And I've got this, you know, this grand idea of this thing that I'm going to build that I've variously tinkered on for, well, 20 something years at this point. Um, it's the project that will never, ever get built. I'm, I'm at this point fully aware that my time will never allow me to build it. But, you know, it's a lovely dream. And for a long time, it was, this was the, the problem domain that I understood. So when I wanted to learn a new language, let's rebuild it. But this time in C, this time in mm -hmm. Python, this time in Ruby just to sort of learn learn the language, to bring a problem you understand to a new language and see how that changes the solution that you've got. 
And uh, around that time, so around 2004, 2005, I had this grand realisation that the, the, the web, the web's a thing, and I might be able to use the web to solve this problem, and so I'd better learn some more about the web because it looks like it's going to be important. Um, and, you know, despite at that point having a PhD in computer science, had never learned anything about how servers or, you know, the internet you know, works at that, at that level anyway. So I sat down and tried to teach myself web programming as best I could and sort of went through PHP tutorials and went through a bunch of other tutorials and none of them stuck. None of them really mm-hmm. made sense um, and that, you know, exacerbated by the fact that open source documentation in the sort of 2000s were not good. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and I tinkered around and tried a bunch of different web frameworks. I remember trying, trying the Rails tutorial at one point, a combination of not knowing Ruby well enough and Rails being a new domain, that didn't really make any sense. Tried a couple of the different Python web frameworks and then stumbled upon uh, Django probably about two months after it was originally open sourced. Django was originally an in-house project at the Lawrence Journal World, which is a, a newspaper, like small town newspaper um, in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, and they made a decision that they were going to open source their web framework that they had been using to build their newspaper website, basically as sort of content management system, but sort of a step back from the full content CMS kind of aspect, just, just the web framework bit. And I found it and went through their tutorial. And for the first time, like a little light went on. It's like, oh, that's what you're, oh, it's just that. Oh, okay. Well, which case, mm-hmm. that's, that's fine. Let's go, let's go with that. And started building up, you know, uh, more, more and more complex experimentation of what I could do. And again, because it was a very, very young project and had only just recently been open sourced, um, there was a lot of stuff that was missing. There were a lot of features that just weren't there. And uh, so I got to a point where I was like, well, okay, this is great, but I really need to be able to do this other thing. It was like a, you could define uh, a many-to-many relationship between two database objects and you could traverse one direction, but you couldn't traverse back the other way. Like, well, okay, but I need to be able to go both ways. So can I can I fix that? I don't know. And because I, that, I did know Python quite well at that point and it's quite a, you know, it was quite a well-structured code base and a lot smaller code base than it is today. Uh, I could, I got into the code, like traced through, like, okay, well, I query it this way, where is being constructed. So if I just like take that and copy it and like reverse all the variables the other way, then that'll reverse it, won't it? And so I did that. And there was also a good test suite. So I could write a bunch of test cases to prove that, yes, this was actually doing what, exactly what it should do. Submitted that as a pull request. And... Uh, yeah, so that was that would have been about two or three months after I'd like for the first time downloaded Django, uh, submitted that pull request, and, like that got reviewed and 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 pulled into the code. Then I did a couple other little small minor things around you know, time zone handling and whatnot, some other bits and pieces that have popped up. And uh, uh, Adrian Holovati, who was one of the project uh, project founders, uh, sort of mailed me and said, "Hey, do you want to join? Do you want to join the core team?" Um, so it was a very, very rapid from having never seen the project before to you're on the core team now. Good luck. Uh, it also helped that at the time they were going through this big thing called magic removal, which was like a, a very large scale, uh, re-engineering of some of the core pieces of Django. So they were willing to sort of give this newcomer access to the magic removal branch without necessarily giving them access to the, to the core. Um, and so, you know, I, I should have joined the team to help with the, help with the removal of the magic, mm-hmm. um, 
and and yeah so that it kind of just progressed from there i sort of just kept tinkering around uh on, on open source uh, on on django mm -hmm. um by happy coincidence about three months after i'd been given the commit bit like was when it was actively contributing uh the place where i was working at the time was uh, so it was a defense consulting company that had a a very a sort of very lucrative contract to build this system that they were going to build for for a, an exercise that was coming up and the like the engineering plan was in were just being kicked off and they were just sort of scoping out how much work was going to be and how long it was going to take to deliver and it was going to be a sort of full fat client you know java gui with user interface and everything that was being built and the plan was calling for this 12 month um, engineering schedule to, to like build this thing out mm -hmm. and it occurred to me that hang on like i mean yeah sure we could do that but we could also like do this as a web page and it'll be done in like three weeks like it's not what we're, we're just basic data collection here this isn't a big big thing we're trying to build so why don't we just like do it as a website pitch that to my engineering manager who sort of said hmm interesting hadn't thought of that goes off he did the, the Django tutorial and like about two days later came back with a very, very bare bones prototype, but a fully working bare bones prototype of this is the system we need to build. We can polish it a lot, but this would do if we had to. Uh, and sort of was kind of, well, yeah, let's do that because we'll be done in like two months and we can spend the rest of the time fine tuning it to make sure it's exactly what we need rather than not having a deliverable until you know, October of this year. Uh, at which point we discover it doesn't work and we've got to, you know, finesse all the other problems. Right. And and so, yeah, at that point, working on open source, it didn't become my day job, but, like, I had a lot of leeway in my working day to fix the problems in Django that were preventing us from building the thing that was actually commercially viable. And it was sort of that, that sort of ideal model of you're not 100% working on Django, but you're working, you're using it and then fixing the bugs as you go and contributing those bugs up, so bug fixes upstream so that then everybody benefits from the thing that you've discovered the hard way by, by trying to resolve this bug. Um, and so, yeah, that then just kind of then set the direction for the next couple of years. I, a lot of the company that we're working at, their work started being seen through the lens of, can we do this as a web framework? Can we do this as web? They never became a web company per se. They were still at events consulting, but they worked out that they could build these, they rapidly develop these websites. And I had a lot of leeway to work on Django bugs and answering <laughs> questions on mailing lists. They weren't directly related to what we were doing, but they did have a you know, big picture had had relevance to, uh, to, to how we were progressing. Now, the thing that's sort of then going on in the background here is that I, I'm based I'm in Perth, Western Australia. We like to lay claim to being the most isolated capital city in the world. Uh, if you get on a plane, you have to fly for three hours to get to the nearest state capital, uh, four or five, depending upon where you're going to get to a you know, real city. Uh, and so I was here in Perth working away on an open source project, did not meet anybody else on the project for almost three years uh, when the first... DjangoCon conference was held, and uh, I, I managed to I beg my my line manager at the time. I changed companies and moved to a different company, but they they had hired me on the basis of my Django experience. So they said, "Okay, well, we'll pay for you to go to to uh, to this conference." Like, wow, someone someone's going to pay for me to fly to the United States so that I can talk about this thing that I've been doing in my spare time and a little bit you know, on work time as well. 
uh, and at that point, you know, flew flew to uh, flew to to uh, San Francisco the mm-hmm. conference that was Google hosted the, the very very first conference, and uh, you know, in the lobby of the hotel where we'd been to set up, uh, I'm checking in, and another Australian voice over the side that that sounds like you might be an Australian. Are you Russell? And it turns out it's Malcolm, who I Malcolm Trudenik, who I'd been working with, uh, was who was based in Sydney, mm-hmm. uh, who I had never met before. Um, and was like the first person I'd met that I'd been working with at that point for two and a half, three years, uh, and you know, start of a beautiful friendship, and then and then met the rest of the team over the course of the next uh, um, you know two days of the of the conference. Um, so yeah, was it weird meeting people in person after interacting with them online for so long? Mm-hmm. Very weird. Uh, and I guess that was kind of my first real exposure to the idea that the person you are on the internet is not the person you are in person uh, or doesn't, isn't necessarily. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think the, the conference hotel that we were at had this sort of weird little social room, uh, which is like set up with the hi-fi lounge and all kind of weird stuff in there. But uh, I, I met a couple of people in there one night and one woman in particular, Barbara Chirette, who who met me uh, and said sort of, you're not the same person I was expecting from reading all of your emails. You are you are a very different person, which uh, I think was a compliment. Um, uh, we're still friends, so I, I think we're I think we're still a compliment. Um, but yeah, she, she she pointed out that my email presence was very formal and very very straightforward, very bullet point. These are the things we're going to get done. Um, which, when I've had a beer and I'm I'm relaxing with friends, I'm not. So, uh, yeah, it was an interesting little head check that the internet and who you are in person are, are, can be very, very different. And the other thing is also keep in mind is that this is 2005, 2006. I did not at that point have a broadband internet connection. I was doing a lot of this stuff on very, very slow. Um, it was ADSL, but it was very slow ADSL. So like, video chat, it could be done, but it wasn't done a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like just jump on a Zoom call was not something you would do. Uh, it was all being done by text. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was it was very much the emails you wrote was who you were, unless you actually physically knew someone in person. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I think that even though we have Zoom and video calls and I am, um, I think people still run into that disconnect, that cognitive dissonance between who you are in person and who you are online. Um, yeah. Because you can edit. And, I, and it's, yeah, you, you can edit, you can edit mm-hmm. stuff. Like also, but it's also that the, uh, there is, like, it, it, I, this is one of the things I've been feeling particularly around around sort of COVID as, a, as an experience is that that's forced me to be in Perth. I'm like, I'm not going to anywhere, mm-hmm. all the conferences that I normally go to. And online conferences become weird because if I go to an online conference that's in the United States, they're winding down at the end of the day and it's six o'clock in the morning for me. Mm-hmm. And so they're kicking back and they've got a drink in one hand and they're having being nice and social and I'm wolfing down cereal. And I mean, I guess I could mix that with whiskey, but probably not a good idea. Uh, and so there's like, there's a whole different, like where you are in the day matters a whole mm-hmm. lot around the way that you interact with other people and, and sort of whether you're being social or whether you're being formal or whether you're like we're trying to formally follow an agenda or we're uh, just kicking back and, and telling telling stories. And 
that's a really hard thing to navigate when mm -hmm. you are so geographically isolated and time zone isolated in my case as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and people are often in different mindsets at different times of the day. So mm. it makes total sense. Yeah. So what would you like to, to talk about today? Um, yeah, I, I guess is there's a, I, I, the story that I've just uh, told about getting involved in open source mm -hmm. uh, is kind of the, uh, it's the origin story, mm -hmm. um, which, which is how I got into open source and how I got to be involved in the Django project. And that has like absolutely shaped my life. And mm -hmm. the, the, the meta story is there is it honestly, like, uh, I guess the, the, there's the Gary, there's a Gary Larson comic from way back when it's like on the internet, no, or was it maybe New York, New York or something on the internet, no one knows you're a dog was my life for a long time. It's like, I am, I am this person on the internet from, from out in the middle of nowhere. And the only reason you know I exist is because I mailed the mailing lists. Um, but I've been able to go from that to be someone who is known to people in Europe and known to people in the U S and known to people in the rest of Australia and Asia. And I've traveled to conferences to see them and been invited to speak at conferences. So it's, uh, it has been an amazing personal journey to, be able to have this international presence and reputation based upon something that is basically what I'm working on in my spare time for, for, the, for, for the most part. And that's been wonderful. Like the people that I've met have changed my life in ways that I can't describe and provided opportunities that I you know, would not have imagined 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But there's also a really weird kind of dark and downside to it. Um, the volunteering because so much of it is done as volunteer labor um it is very easy to get sucked into a hole where you end up giving a lot of yourself like as a as a volunteer it is easy to end up in a place where you end up giving a lot of yourself to this project that doesn't like doesn't it literally doesn't pay the bills it maybe indirectly pays the bills like uh, most of the job offers that i've gotten over the last 15 years have been related one way or another to my reputation in open source which is yeah that's definitely helpful um but it's very easy to get tied up in oh but i have to i have to keep doing this contribution i have to get tied i have to i've got these emails that have to be answered mm -hmm. and that in particular, there are there are there are a lot of people who come to open source who don't necessarily share the giving back aspect as much. They see this free thing, mm -hmm. and they treat it as a product that they can consume and absorb and use. And when it doesn't work, it's your fault, and it's specifically your fault because you personally are the person who didn't find this bug, fix this bug, didn't respond to their ticket fast enough, whatever it is that they perceived to be the slight and that can be as simple as just straight up abuse on mm -hmm. mailing lists or it can be a really sort of subtle insidious thing of just constantly being the thorn in the side asking about when is this going to happen when are you going to do this thing and you know, when it is with some, working with someone who you have done something for them and they do something for you that sort of because it is a give and take relationship, it does kind of earn you, 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 at least there is a sense of obligation there, but it's an earned obligation because they have done something for you in return. But there's a lot of people who don't necessarily see it as that, as that mm -hmm. earned obligation. And that 
can lead into some very, very dark patterns of um, like getting your brain to some very, very dark, dark patterns where the you're getting your little dopamine rush of contribution by doing something. But the reason you're getting that dopamine rush is people asking you to do something that you wouldn't have otherwise done. Like you weren't getting paid to do this. So why would you going to do it otherwise? You're All of a sudden you are internalizing all of the angst and pain about a bug that in no way impacts on you. It's like not solving a problem you have. You just think you're fixing this thing because someone else will feel better as a result of you fixing their thing. And that combination of, of that sort of those sort of pressures, and I sort of, I am a chronic volunteer. I will, I will jump in and 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 help help out with anything that I see that is going on. Led me to like I got involved with the Django Software Foundation because someone needed to do it, and I thought that I could do it, and I did it reasonably well for a couple of years, I guess. And you end up doing a bunch of things that you're not doing because you enjoy them. You're doing them because you think they need to be done but you're not getting anything back other than maybe some collective community appreciation if you're lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, and that in, in terms of my own personal story, uh, I ended up in a, in a very, very dark place, not just as a result of open source or some other things going on in my life at the same time, but the combination of factors that open source was a, was a big one or open source contribution was a big one um, led to, I, I was diagnosed as uh, having a, a major mental health incident. Uh, about seven years ago at this point. And I needed to take a big step back, scale back my involvement in, in Django, scale back my involvement in open source for a little while, at least, at least reassess what I was doing, uh, all the reasons why I was doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess there's a, there's a very, there is, there is so much positive and so much good that comes out of, um, out of open source as a, as a community, as an ecosystem, sort of software and systems improve collectively much better than they do when they're being pushed by you know one company's particular interests but there is also a dark side um, mm. and related to that is as something that sort of is i think part of my pivot was stepping away from django as a project because sort of the collective wasn't uh, i i needed to separate it, the easiest like I, I do things in black and white you either do them or i don't and so the easiest way for me was to kind of step back from from django as a project uh, and so I started tinkering on my own thing on on, on Beware as this Beware project, mm-hmm. which one sort of let me tinker and contribute in my own time and my own thing to something that I was interested in, and that has then you know sort of has grown over time. And and you know I need to keep a head check on whether I'm ended up going down the same dark pattern sometimes. Um, but it kind of also drew my attention to the way that you know, without wanting to seem too much like a political radical, the, the way that capitalism interacts with that whole process. Um, that a lot of the pressures that you are you end up seeing that are you observe as individuals asking you know, when are you going to fix this is not actually an individual asking it's a company asking like they're doing it because a company is using this product and needs it to be fixed mm-hmm. but those companies aren't necessarily giving back some some do um, some do a lot more than others but it's not anywhere near as ingrained that op- in, in open source as an ecosystem and open source as a as a culture that you can that, that companies who are using open source who are almost always using it because it's the free option and free as in it costs nothing option not because it's you know the freedom liberty you know, right lovely high high ideals that that maybe the the word free is occasionally useful they're using it because it costs them nothing and they're mm-hmm. getting free support. They're getting that from volunteers 
who are burning themselves out to satisfy these needs because they've got this weird little dopamine thing going on in their head. That's not sustainable long term. Like the the unfortunate side of open source is the number of people that I've seen that have gone in, contribute, do two years of amazing work and contributions, and then just burn out because of the pressures that have been placed on them by often people who have resources and should know a lot better, but mm -hmm. because they're able to, and there's no sort of active restriction to prevent them from doing it, don't stop them from burning out other people mm -hmm. um, because they are outside you know, their organizational hierarchy or whatever. And so, yeah, I, I guess that's kind of the, we are, I think we are as a, as a open source as a movement is in an interesting little place right now. Like technologically, I think everybody or most everybody is on board with the idea that open systems build better systems in the long run, but we haven't worked out how we build them collectively without in some cases, literally killing people. Yeah. Um, that there are, there, there is a, there is a piece of this puzzle that's missing um, that, I think collectively we are, we are in a place where we need to have start having these conversations a lot more seriously than we are at the moment. Yeah, it's interesting too because as we've seen the rise in popularity of open source, both in the projects started and the projects consumed, um, there is this increased pressure because you know maintainers are worried that. Uh, if they don't follow up on requests or bugs or what have you, that they're going to be damaging their professional identity as well. Mm. Um, so it does make it m very difficult to take care of, of your own needs and your identity away from open source. Um, so that makes, it, it's at a kind of critical point and it has been for a while. Yeah, yeah, and it has been. Yeah, it has been for a while. It's like this is this is also not a new situation. Like burnout of maintainers is something that we've observed. Like it's been observed. Mm -hmm. well, as it hasn't necessarily been actively observed, but if you go back, go back and look, you can sort of see the patterns happening for for like years and years going back. Mm -hmm. And the only the only open source ones that are probably contributors who don't burn out are the ones who. Either the project is open source in name, but not actually like in spirit. It's like it's the in-house project that everyone can see the source code to, but only people at that company actually work on it. Mm -hmm. And but then as soon as that company decides they don't care about the project, the project dies. The project just gets cut off because all of a sudden it doesn't have this organic ecosystem around it. It's just this one thing that's been propped up by one company. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I think there's there's a working out. This is, we know that this is the thing that builds the best technological solutions or certainly has all evidence seems to suggest it builds the best technological solutions. How do we actually build this without hurting people? Mm -hmm. um, how, how do we continue to recognise that there are people in on the other side of the planet who can yeah. make a meaningful contribution to the design and, and, and build a, a design of this ecosystem without needing to like literally burn them out because they're spending all of their spare time answering angry emails from mm -hmm. someone who for them is just this, this thing that I'm going to shout off and, and yell into the yell into the night, but it's an actual directed personal attack at one person uh, who's receiving that email. Mm 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So we only have a couple minutes left, um, which the time got away from me for sure. Mm -hmm. Cause I've been engrossed. Um, so I, I'll, I'll pose one last question. Um, where do you see open source's greatest potential? I, I guess for me, the greatest potential is in the fact that it is accessible. It is accessible to everybody. Uh, like I am geographically isolated, but I have been able to get into a project. Uh, I have had, as a result of my involvement in the Django project, any number of uh, uh, contacts with people in Africa who uh, have had, because, because there is this zero cost of entry and it's really just, as long as you've got a internet connection you can kind of get involved with the community at some level they've been able to get into this technology it is a massive lever that lets people get into this technology um very very easily that the fact that you don't have to be physically resided in san francisco to be able to have an impact on the technological world or new york or austin or you know any other tech center you want to pick you can be anywhere. You can literally be anywhere and contribute and make a meaningful, have a meaningful impact on the world, I think is probably the biggest potential impact that it can have, that we can, it can literally be a worldwide project to improve the world that we are in. Um, working out how to then resource that in a way that doesn't cause these people to come into the project and then burn out because you know, all the, the entire world then lands on their doorstep and, and asks why they're not doing their job properly. Uh, that's, that is then the challenge that I think we've, we've got, to, we, we are, we are facing as a community. Gotcha. Now that, that is the opportunity and challenges do go hand in hand. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think the part of, part of that that goes along, part, and this is one of those things that's tied to it because it is, because it is zero cost to get into, it also means that the problems that get addressed aren't necessarily the ones that have huge financial payoffs next to it. Like it's, the solutions, the things that get solved are the things that problems that people actually have versus the problems that can be monetized by somebody. Uh, and so lots of little things can be built that solve a small community's needs really, really well and would never be commercially viable. But because they've now got a a technology stack that is evolving that lowers the barrier to entry because more and more focus is being put on to um, how do we onboard people into this technology? I mean, how do we make this technology easier and easier to use combined with, you know, the ubiquity of modern technology? It, it means that we end up with more of the world's problems being solved, but not by directly like one company deciding this problem needs to be solved by building the tools that lets people help themselves and then giving them a community and an ecosystem they can get into to help everybody work out that they can do this thing better. And it's um, so a very yeah. hands around the world kind of, uh, kind of feeling, but uh, I, you know, I genuinely believe that it is at, at least at some level is true and it's, and it certainly is possible. Well, thank you so much, Russell, for, for coming and speaking with us today. Um, and I hope to, uh, be able to to chat with you again soon. Okay. Absolutely. My, my pleasure. <laughs> Bye, y'all. Thank you very much.